Let me pray for our time together. Uh, God, we thank you so much for just this privilege of worshiping you together as your people. What wondrous reality that we have become part of, adopted children of God, heirs of your eternal kingdom, brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is our prayer that as Kyle preaches from your word again and points us to you and to your son, Jesus, again, that truly joy that surpasses our circumstances, a joy that overcomes our fears, our uncertainties, the certain joy that is found in Christ alone would, would fill us, that we'd be reminded of it, that we'd be taken captive by it, and that he would direct us and constrain us to live in a manner that pleases you, in a manner that exudes delight and joy and thanksgiving. So please do that work and be with Kyle. May he preach with freedom and power that comes from your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. It is always a helpful sign when there are more people present the second time you speak than there were the first. So it means at least we're on a good trajectory because there are alternatives to more people being there the second time. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And you're allowed to use the table of contents for this one. Habakkuk. In our first session last night, uh, as we're looking at this theme of surpassing joy and looking at our reasons for surpassing joy, we specifically dealt with this in the context of uncertainty the challenge of life's uncertainties and how the reasons we have for joy, the the clarity we have in those reasons far exceeds any uncertainty we can have in a, a temporary sense. In this session and the next, we're going to press into when life is hard and doesn't make sense. How do we have joy? when hurt is pressing in. The setting of this book is uh, when Judah has been hardened in sin uh, and the rule of God is being ignored. The the northern kingdom was already conquered uh, over a century before The people had seen the example of God's judgment on Israel with the coming of the Assyrians, and yet the southern kingdom has gone the same way. And we have the prophet Habakkuk, a man who loved the Lord and his ways, and he is greatly discouraged 
by what seems to be the free reign of injustice throughout the land. And that's how he begins in chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. I'm an interesting way to describe it. That's what it looked like. The rule of law, unable to do what it's supposed to do. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Life's burdens have no sense of fairness. It's not as though we can look around and see, yeah, that person lives a lousy life, and look how bad it is. Well, that person's, they're pretty good, so yeah, they don't have... Much that's hard. It's not as though we just look at people, how they live, look at their difficulties. Oh, it all makes sense. Now, we know life will be hard at times. We recognize in this world of sin and rebellion, uh, there will be difficulty. It's not just what we do then in failures and things brings hardship to us. We're we're splattered by the effects of the sin of others. It's not evenly divided, and we want difficulty and trial to at least make sense. Somehow we can get our minds around it and have a framework. Okay, I, I get where it's coming from, where it's going. And at least let it be evenly divided. Let us all have a fair share. We expect God to reduce our burdens if we're faithful. Like Habakkuk, we wonder, when is God going to get involved? Will you not hear? When I cry, will you not save? I remember talking with a pastor who was overwhelmed. And he said, if I can just see God in it, I'll be okay. I just want to see God in it. That would sustain me. Here, Habakkuk, he's not seeing God in it. And that's that's true for all of us at times. We, We don't see God in it. Verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. This is God's response. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, 
that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So the Lord's response to Habakkuk, I am in motion right now. Here's my plan. I'm raising up the Babylonian Empire, and they're going to come and assault your nation and carry it away. That's God's plan. And that made no sense to Habakkuk. Verse 12, Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. You, a rock, you've established them for reproof. Lord, you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God had an answer for the evil that had permeated the people of Israel. God was sending the Babylonian Empire in judgment. They would absorb the nation and cart them off. And that, as an answer from God, made no sense to the prophet Habakkuk. How can your answer involve a pagan nation who doesn't care for you at all. And in our pain, sometimes God's plan and activity to us seems no fairer than the world. We look at the sovereignty of God and think, well, I'm believing God rules and is in control of all, but then why is it like it is? And we're not seeing the goodness of God in that plan. So how is joy possible when life is hard? When we're believing and being told that actually God is at work and in all this that is difficult, God is, that's actually God's hand. It's part of it. He's using these things that are hard and unpleasant. How can joy be possible even when we come to a, at least an intellectual conviction? Okay, I'm believing God is still sovereign. I'm believing he's in control. I'm believing he's there. But believing that and then leaping to having joy seems too far and too hard. When all we see is our hurt, it's hard to trust. But God, as we've already sung, is worthy of it. Those who don't have Christ, they're trusting themselves and what the world will figure out. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul, speaking of the sinful man, his soul is puffed up, meaning the world lives by pride in their opinion. We're going to figure out, we know, if we can, if we can get control of the situation, if those from our per- perspective, if we can gather control, we know we can fix it. And that's the hope of the world, that 
We who are right, and that's the opinion of everyone, we're right if somehow our side gains the mechanisms of influence and power, we will make it better. They have said and thought for centuries and millennium. And there are bright, committed, well-intentioned people throughout the world trying their best to make it work. They truly are seeking to make it work. But the only improvements we ever have, really, is is our comforts. That's the only thing we've really been able to improve throughout human history. Life is much more comfortable. We live without all the diseases we've had. We This morning... I had a hot shower. I thought many times, how many billions of people throughout history never experienced a hot shower? Most of humanity. No one had a hot shower. They never even thought of it. They were happy if you had clean and running water you could jump into. I had a hot shower every day. Or last night, ice cream. How many people? Never centuries, generations went by, never knowing ice cream. Uh, We are improving all sorts of comforts. But the human soul has never improved despite all humanity has done to try to make life work. We haven't lifted the needle of the condition of the soul and human experience outside of our comforts. The the world lives by trusting in themselves what they can accomplish. In that same verse 4, the righteous live by faith. But the righteous shall live by faith, meaning uh, our hope is not that we can gain power and then control and make it work. Our hope is we follow a God who knows what he's doing, who is good and faithful. And as we follow what he is doing, life is whole. It is the statement that then is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 17, that then uh, is what started the Protestant Reformation. The just shall live by faith. The, the words that converted Martin Luther. Meaning, those who are righteous live by trusting. Meaning, it's not just an intellectual exercise. We entrust our heart, our attitudes, our actions. We entrust ourselves that God really is wise, really is good, really is sovereign. And because we believe that, we, we live with the perspective as if that's true. If God is ruling, sovereign, good, wise, faithful, then our heart's demeanor, our attitudes and actions will represent that God is all of this all of the time, that he truly is the sum of all perfections. 
It is a big jump to go from saying, I believe God is perfect, to what is the implication of that? God is always being perfect toward me. You can't have one without the other. God cannot be perfect. And then we not be able to say, so Lord, right now and in everything, you have been perfect toward me. God has shown himself worthy to be trusted. And that's part of the foundation that we sought to build last night as we looked over the, the immensity of gospel promise and fulfillment. God is worthy to be trusted for when we bowed before his gospel, he did make us clean. And he did give us new life. And when we follow God's word, we are strengthened. And life may continue to be hard in certain ways, yet there is stability, there is certainty, there is peaceableness. Like Habakkuk, in fact, better than Habakkuk. We know enough about God to trust him. Chapter 3, verse 2. Habakkuk confirms his faith in the Lord. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Uh, Habakkuk is, is submitting to what God has said of his plan and goodness. And though it doesn't make sense, Habakkuk is saying, I know you, so Lord, I'm trusting you in this. And inserted in this then should be that dynamic of what we saw yesterday in 1 Peter where the prophets who were hearing the promises and even giving them and, and searching and wanting to know how is God going to do this, and we now know. Habakkuk is able to say, I have heard enough of you to be content. And what we know and have heard of Christ crucified, raised, and reigning is far greater than the prophet had. It really does leave us without excuse in terms of trusting. We know God has created and sustains and will judge all things. Everything is before him. We know what he promised centuries before has now taken place. The promises are fulfilled. God became flesh. He was born of a virgin. He did die on a cross. He was raised from the dead. We know that he came to us Not in arrogance, demanding, you bow before me, I'm God here. He came in humility, calling us to believe and receive his sacrifice for us. There will still be circumstances that don't make sense. Isn't that the part of the dynamic of trust? If it always makes sense, and if we always have a backdoor plan where if we're pressed, well, we know how we're going to fix it. Faith and trust really become 
redundant. What helps me when I think of, Lord, it doesn't make sense, or this is too much, or this is too hard. Picture yourself with, with those complaints that in the moment we think are so justified. Think of yourself. Make those complaints not to kind of the idea of God out there. Make those complaints as if you are standing before Jesus on the cross. Imagine yourself, him, unrecognizable. He's been beaten so badly. His life literally flowing forth in blood and you're hearing the jeers and you're hearing the mockery and you're seeing the suffering and in that context tell the sacrificing crucify Jesus this is too hard this is unfair it changes our perspective a little bit when we when we think, who is it we're complaining to? And what is it that he has done for us? When we see clearly God himself, just God, is sufficient reason for joy. And that is maybe the, the key statement to think of, to take from this session. God himself, and what he has done promised, what we already have, that is sufficient reason for joy. Which brings us to the end of Habakkuk. What is, in a sense, the punchline of the book. And this Habakkuk's like Ecclesiastes, where all of the book really is about the last couple verses. And everything just leads to just this final statement. So for Habakkuk, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, the the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, what he's speaking to is, he knows the Babylonians are coming. He knows what do conquering armies do? They take everything, and they leave destruction in their wake. So Habakkuk, who knows what is coming? And from an agricultural society, it means from that perspective, everything goes wrong. Your crops, your herds, the orchards, everything is going to be destroyed. So he's saying, Lord, when it is all stripped away, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy In the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is describing circumstances 
that are overwhelming. And yet he will take joy in God when, when everything that is around you seems to be going wrong. And why, why would he do that? How could any reasonable person do that? And the answer is, he is the God of my salvation. And we took time last night to think about, so what is this salvation? What is embedded? How great is this salvation? Our salvation is greater than any loss. It is greater than any struggle. And no aspect of our salvation is affected by any struggle. Our our adoption is, is not affected the removal of our guilt is not affected. That we are beloved of God is not affected. That we will reign with Christ is not affected. There is nothing of our salvation that is altered, diminished, affected in any way by our difficulties. So though the difficulties are here and they're real, the pain of it is there. Yet the full glory of our salvation always remains. Why he will rejoice is God who he's rejoicing in is the God of my salvation. I rejoice in him because my salvation and all that it gives. He's the one that gives it. And how does joy come? And this, this was revolutionary for me. He says, I will take it. Now that's, that's important to notice. He doesn't say, if I just think about it and wish about it and pray enough, joy will just fall upon me. Joy is something to take hold of. He's not waiting for joy to come. He is not hoping for it. He is going after it. He is owning the reasons he has for joy. And if the reasons haven't changed, that means I can find it. It's out there. Oh, one of the, the phrases that has been picked up and repeated rightly and for our benefit over and over in the last 20 years is the idea of, of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Jerry Bridges heard it, popularized it, and everyone else quotes it. We speak of it a lot in our church. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, meaning we are reminding our own soul and one another regularly of why we have reason for joy. Or is it Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, as he put it, uh, the reason that Christians stay in depression and discouragement is that they listen to themselves rather than speak to themselves. Meaning, we listen to the recording. This is so bad. 
I'm no good. This is so hard. Everyone's against me. We listen over and over to that voice, convincing ourselves rather than pushing that away and speaking to ourselves. I have Christ. I am in Christ. Christ is faithful. He is here. He has saved me. He has given me hope. We preach to ourselves gospel truth. We remind ourselves that we are in the story of Christ. It is our story. We we reminded our, ourselves that we are in the flow of what is eternal. Life is not just the framework of birth to death. We are in something that is before time and does not end. Our perspective is an eternal one rather than now. I said I would be a little bit biographical today. This text has been the single most revolutionary, revolutionary, and I don't overstate it, passage of Scripture in my life, apart from knowing and hearing that Jesus died to save me. Hearing a sermon on this text by C.J. Mahaney years ago, hearing a recording of it, led to huge change. A time when I was overwhelmed and discouraged and didn't know what to do, and the church was struggling and I was pulling down that it's my fault and I, I, ha- I have no idea what to do or how to fix it and nothing is working. I would get up when it was dark. I would spend hours before the Lord praying, calling on him, pleading. And not just every once in a while, day after day after day after month, hours before him, desperate. Lord, I will get up early. I will call out to you for hours. I'm desperate. And every day I would end more discouraged than when I began. Because it really, it wasn't calling out to God, it was whining and complaining to God. After dinner, I would go to bed because I wanted to be unconscious. It was starting to affect my health. And God brought a number of streams together. But the most prominent was to learn what it says in verse 18. To learn that I have a responsibility to be joyful. I'm not waiting for God to make things better and likable. Now I can have joy. No, it's, it's my responsibility to pursue it because everything in the gospel is true and greater than I can imagine. And when I began to turn 
all that time of whining and complaining and crying out and woe is me and it's so bad and God, when are you going to change it? When are you going to fix it? And I stopped for a long time. I didn't even ask God of anything. I just worshipped. And those mornings I would come and just speak of him and think. I would take a different theme, different days, something of just that God would come in flesh or what it meant for Jesus to take our sin or if the glory coming, I would just fill my mind and spend it all thinking and worshiping him. Before then, when I would wake up, as soon as my foot hit the floor, I wasn't even past the end of my bed. Every morning, the voices would start of accusation. So when I would go in my study to pray, I had already been hearing all the accusation. You're a failure. The church is going to ruin. It's been built up by those before you, and you're going to tear it down. And I would just hear accusation. And then after this, I don't remember how long it was. And the timing of this actually was the first time I went to a Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference. And along with this passage and discovering Sovereign Grace music, um, and at one moment during one of the sessions, I don't remember what the teaching was on or who was teaching. I just remember thinking this, realizing the thought that just came to me has nothing to do with what's being taught. So it was just God in this moment just striking me with this seemingly random thought, which was, you've been a pastor all these years and you've never studied or read about worship. And it struck me as, how could that be? How could I have spent all this time and never seriously studied or thought about worship? So from the listening to to good worship music every day and in thinking of taking joy and seeing myself fundamentally, I am a worshiper. That is my most basic identity. I am a worshiper. And I can remember the morning when I realized that when I got out of bed and was making my way to the place of prayer, it wasn't accusations that were in my mind anymore. It was the words of songs. People began to tell me, your preaching is different. I'm not sure what it is. My wife could see a difference. And I could see a difference. And, you know, the circumstances and situations that had led to all that sorrow didn't change at all. Indeed, They just continued on for years. Unending, pressing in. And yet, my whole approach to the Lord, 
to preaching, to life, has been changed by the gracious mercy of God to, I've been raised in hearing the gospel, preaching the gospel, to say, be gospel-centered. I thought I was because we were giving the gospel, but I really wasn't because I wasn't applying the gospel to how I was thinking. The gospel was what you gave to those horrible people out there who needed Jesus in their desperation. It wasn't applying it to my own soul. We have a responsibility to take joy in the Lord because of what we have in him, because of who he is in all of his greatness and glory. And this God of greatness and glory is not a far off God. He's not a God that looks at us with judgment. He is the God who says, you are my beloved and you are mine forever. And so to take joy from the truth. That's all this really is. It, this is really a matter of just seeing the truth and letting the truth be what affects us. And the truth is we have far greater reason for joy even when everything around us is going wrong. This doesn't mean we never have sorrow before God. Some things are sorrowful. And the Bible says there's a time to cry. And we cannot properly care for people if we don't suffer with them. 1 Corinthians 12, we mourn with those who mourn. Christians who come alongside those who are hurting and just try to, we think we'll make them feel better. We make them feel worse because we're as if we're minimizing their pain so they can't own the fact that this just hurts. So we, we enter into the pain of others. We mourn with others. There's a time to cry. And our joy at times is muted some. But as John Piper says, it should be indestructible. Our joy is indestructible because the reasons for our joy are indestructible. The realities of what we're joyful about are indestructible because Christ is and his kingdom is and our salvation is and his promise is. And so learning the skills, it's one thing to say Take joy in our salvation. Pursue that. Well, how do we do that? And it's not a, you know, okay, I'm going to give you the three things. You just do these, and by the end of next week, you'll get it. You'll, you'll be there. We all recognize that there are certain things worth becoming skilled at that we seek to be skilled at. It means learning 
the nuance of it, pursuing it, doing it over and over. Uh, Bob Coughlin, uh, founder of Sovereign Grace Music, he'll say, people come up to him all the time and say, oh, I wish I could play the piano like you. And he says, you can. He says, all you have to do is spend three to four hours every day at the piano for five years, and you'll be like me. What people are saying, I just want it to happen. (laughs) Well, it didn't just happen for him. He spent three or four hours a day, every day for five years. Uh, I can't give you, do these things and it will happen. Uh, What I can encourage you is that it's worth learning to be skilled at the pursuit of the person of God. Uh, I can say it involves, for me, a long season long season where I barely asked anything of God. He knows, and it's not that I never asked, but my focus was was offering praise and worship and just working on that. And that that's where theology is needed. If our theology is shallow, we don't have much to say or think about in terms of worship. The more our theology runs deep, there's more that we understand and there's much more we have to say back to God. And uh, the thankfulness for Sean, the theology committee, in the new statement of faith, if your church sees that, aware of it, reading through and praying over the statement of faith, that would be one thing. Just taking it and phrase by phrase, reading that phrase, each phrase is dense God glorifying, and just let your mind think about all that it is in that and praying over that. Uh, listening uh, to worship music that has some depth to it, allowing that, uh, being around people who love the Lord, just talking about what God is doing. Uh, when we talk about to each other, even the simple things, what we're seeing God do or what we're thankful of, or what we, how many times do we see something in someone and we think, I really appreciate it. We just never say it. We, we see it, acknowledge, we never say it. The more we share what is going on, what it does is we start becoming more aware of how active God is as we're communicating to each other the little things God is doing and we start realizing, wow, God really is busy. God's active. Speaking of it with each other. Uh, reading the Bible, not to get done the section today. It, reading, God's speaking to me. What is God saying to me? And, and finding the ways that help you. But seek to be skilled at being a worshiper, at being someone who's pursuing joy. And outside of salvation itself, nothing has served me better in all life and ministry than this passage, than this verse. And the importance of this, I'll close with this thought. 
the importance of being people who pursue joy, who take joy. It's not just for yourselves. Because everyone around you has pain. Everyone. We're we're covering it. We're pushing it down. We're ignoring it. You don't have to press too deeply. And pain comes out. Everyone is struggling for answers. When people see your joy and hardship, how could that be? Uh, Unbelievers want to know why, how. Believers are encouraged. Their faith is strengthened as they remember. Yes, the gospel's true. God is glorified. And then our soul is further enriched because God will use us. Uh, I enjoy being with pastors. I spend time with pastors all the time. And uh, I would hear from pastors when I would, we'd have lunch that they were encouraged. And it would always amaze me. I'm thinking, why? Well, we just talked about stuff. And they would say it as though something meaningful happened. And I'm wondering, what am I missing? What, what was so great? Uh, then I, I realized it was, I was seeking to be struggle forward in conversation rather than the typical pastor thing where you're trying to impress with how many you have or how well your programs go or of just leading. Yeah, these are things we're struggling with and weakness and, and then just answering with God's goodness. But he's good in all this. And I began seeing how much that was affecting other men who were thinking they had to hide behind success. We don't need to hide behind success. We just need to be honest about Christ and what he is and who he is because that's what the world needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these whom you have so wonderfully, fully, gloriously saved. These lives that are delight to you. These people whom Zephaniah has said, you sing over them. Your delight is so great. May they see how rich and full is this love. May they see the depth and breadth of the gospel how much is true of them, for them. And in that, their hearts would be enriched, their souls build up. You glorified, people impacted. So help us each not just to be emotionally built up by these messages or time, but help us to be instructed. Give us tools, speak to us in ways that we can go forth with practices and habits and ways of thinking that truly do move how our life is lived. We ask for this grace in the name of the one we know loves to give grace. In Jesus' name, amen.